Let's turn our attention to the scriptures. But first, let's just take a moment and settle our hearts, uh, collect our scattered senses, and uh, prepare to hear God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we desire to hear from you. You are faithful and true, good, gracious, and loving. As we open our hearts to you, would you come, attend these words, and be present? Lead, convict, guide, encourage. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, continuing our series in the book of Colossians, we're in Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 11 through 14. Mark preached last week. When Mark preaches, we go fast, and when I preach, we go slow. And so we're going to slow it down because, whew, I got a good, just too much to handle last week. No, it was good. 11 through 14, Colossians chapter 3, this is God's word. Here, in the Christian community, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A thought experiment. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're sitting at a table, and this is a table in your house, and you've invited a certain group of people over. And at that table is an ICE agent, an undocumented immigrant, a Republican politician, a Berkeley professor, Black Lives Matter activist, an ex-con, single mom, former Muslim, a U.S. veteran, a former Wiccan, and a pastor. Let's say it's Pastor Isaac. (laughs) They all love Jesus. They are new Christians. And they have come to your house to share a meal. And to hear Paul, who is your guest, preach a message. And at that dinner, Paul says to this group, because of Jesus' work on the cross, you are now brothers and sisters. 
And Jesus wants you to live together as a family so that by your love together, the world may know that Jesus is Lord. Do you think that they might need some help working that out? Some guidance about how to make that real. And yet that is exactly the situation that Paul is speaking into in Colossae. He is saying here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in this passage, he has, he has two things that he wants these believers to take away. You have been bound together in Christ. You have been knit together in love. You have been bound together in Christ. You have been knit together in love. First, bound together in Christ. He says here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. That is an extraordinary statement. That because of what Christ has accomplished, there's no division. Think about the huge canyons that separated these different groups that he mentioned. And now he's saying that canyon can't hold back love. There is no division based on cultural background or social status or whatever else might divide us because at the cross, reality got a makeover. Everything was made new. So that those who are in Christ become members of this beautifully diverse new family, this new self that Paul has been talking about, a new man, a new Adam, a new humanity. We become one with Jesus and with one another. And that means that in a special way, Gentiles and Jews are now equal partners in the family of God, but also barbarians and Scythians. Fun fact, barbarian is actually a Greek slur for people that are outside of Greece. They speak a different language. And to Greeks, anyone that didn't speak Greek sounded like bar, 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 bar. Barbarians. That's a real thing. And Scythian is a word used to describe, it's, it's a word like we would, it's another slur, how we would use like hillbilly or white trash, a derogatory word used to designate uneducated or backwoods people. He said, these people who you looked down on once, now they're family. Those born outside are now equal, natural-born citizens in the kingdom of God. And slaves who may have had a, a lower status in the world, in this family, they're seen as they really are, made in the image of their creator. 
You see, in the ancient world, it took for granted that there was a natural hierarchy with some destined to be on top and some destined to be on bottom. And if you don't think we're any different, you're bananas. A hierarchy. Who's, in your mind, is supposed to be on top? Who is supposed to be on bottom? But the cross is the great turning point of human history, the the rewriting of cosmic reality so that these narratives designed to keep us opposed to and apart from one another, God is writing a new story in the gospel, a new reality. And it's about unity in Christ, this special oneness with God and with one another that transcends our tribes, our man-made barriers and boundaries so that we are actively being renewed in the image of Christ through relationship. And he sums this up by saying Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. That whatever has happened to a person in Christ, in other words, has become the most significant thing about them. Christ is their all in all. They've died and their life is now hidden with Christ in God, as Paul has just said. Once we boasted in our culture and intellect, once we gloried in who we voted in, once we got our strokes by our ethnic pedigree, once we reveled in not being like them, the barbarians, the shabby Scythians, but now Christ is all. Once we tried to find our significance and happiness, our security in who we were in relationship to other people or in distinction from other people, but now that old self is died and a new self is born and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. To, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And all that means is that my identity in Christ is now my ultimate identity. It is bigger than what I have, bigger than where I came from, what I look like, how successful I am, or who I want to have sex with. Doesn't erase those things. All those things are somehow a part of myself, a part of my identity, but are they the main thing? No. Christ is all. It changes the way we see ourselves. And it changes the way we see others. Because it says, and Christ is in all. That this reality isn't just true of me. It's true of you. Christ indwelling you. So you go to the next verse and you see words like chosen. Holy, set apart, beloved. And you recognize that those words aren't just for me to make me feel good about myself. They're words to remind me of who my neighbor is in God's eyes. These are the lens through which I am to see my Christian brother and sister, to look at you and to see chosen. Beloved, set apart, to no longer see barbarian or Scythian, to no longer see gray hair or pink hair, 
but to see Christ. It is that haunting passage in the gospel when Christ says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't take me in. Me in. It's how closely he aligns with his beloved. Christ is all. Christ is in all. What binds us together? It's not our suffering. It's not what we've been born into. Not what we've accumulated. It's that we've equally come to the cross of Christ. Broken over sin. All made new by him. And notice the unity isn't based on uniformity. Unity doesn't mean looking the same, voting the same, thinking the same, doing the same thing with our kids in terms of discipline and schooling. We're not looking for uniformity. In fact, God's kingdom is beautifully diverse. He is showing his power to reconcile by bringing different kinds of people together. Unity, but not uniformity. It's such in contrast to the faux communities that we see in our world today. I think about the the anti-Christian progressivism of our time and place, which presents itself to us as like a bastion of tolerance and acceptance of all ideas and worldviews. Even as it arraigns itself as a war horse on Twitter to silence and cancel and deconstruct and demolish any idea that remotely contradicts the progressive herd mentality. But the right wing isn't any better. In response, creating its parallel media networks and parallel economies. Just reading a right wing pundit this week talking about creating a parallel polis or, or city, a like-minded community of patriots. Quote, a shared community life that enhances the way we think and, community, and communicate, listen to this, so that as to overwhelm and crush and dominate the woke cancel culture that has infected our nation. Right and left, it's all the same. Faux community based on a very rigid uniformity. Us versus them. Nonsense dressed up as tolerance on the one hand and virtue on the other. Surrounded by faux community, what an opportunity for the church. Unity and diversity. Because Christ is all and in all. Because all are made equal by the cross where our sins earn us death, but they are forgiven. And where the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead whispers and says to each one of us, beloved, brother, and sister. Where our beautiful diversity is woven into a reflection, an image, an icon of Jesus' love, the very heart of the Father as a witness to a world that is desperate to belong. Christ is all and in all. Are we letting the earth-shattering reality of what happened to us in Christ 
relativize all of these different aspects of ourselves? Have we let it enter the very center of who we are? Have we let the earth-shattering reality of what happened to our neighbor affect how we treat them? The responsibility that I have to treat you as the beloved of God? We are community bound together in Christ. And we are a community knit together in love. It's what Paul says in verse 14. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And here he's talking about the community of Christ. It might be better to say which binds everyone together in perfect harmony. He said something similar in chapter 2 when he talked about striving so that this church might be knit together in love. Love being the glue or adhesive that will hold it together. And in the verses that precede 14, Paul gives us the various aspects or qualities of love. And so he says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And what our translation translates as compassionate hearts, it comes from two Greek words. And one is splonknon, which is super fun to say. And the other one is oiktermos, which literally means bowels of mercy. And so if you're looking for the name of your Christian metal band, look no further than Bowels of Mercy. That would be a sweet tattoo. In the ancient world, the bowels were used in the same way that we use the word heart. Kind of like a reference to something in the body, but a a primal emotional center of a person. We say heart, they say bowels, theirs is cooler. And what it means is that because of a profound act of love that has happened to us in Christ, that that releases a deep-seated need to express love to others. And excuse me for sounding crass, but it's akin to the tense abdominal pressure to release the bowels. That's the metaphor. There is a pressure or an urgency Paul is saying that the overwhelming mercy of God, the unfathomable love that he has showered on us can, if we let it, produce a need to do likewise. We have been given such graciousness that we have to find a way to express the same thing. And what does it produce? Kindness. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness which isn't courtesy in the scriptures. It's benevolent action. It's a broad category that means freely doing good to others. Lewis Smedes calls kindness, I love this, love's readiness to enhance the life of another person. Kindness is the active side of God's love. God's mercy and love in our lives leads to almost an obligation to show kindness, active love to others. 
It's the obligation that the, the monks felt in the early church to invent hospitals. That it's the, it's the obligation that birthed mass literacy as the gospel advanced. It's what spurred abolition in the West. It's what motivates countless other compassionate efforts initiated by Christian organizations around the world. And yet, it's not the great acts of humanitarian aid that I think Paul is talking about when he talks about kindness. When he talks about kindness, he's thinking about the things that make me glory in my life in the church. Don't get me wrong, I am glad that the church, churches build wells in developing countries and does likewise things, but secular NGOs do those things just as well. For me, the allure of the Christian community is in the quiet, ordinary goodness, the silent ways in which I watch people care for one another week in and week out. The young man who gives an elderly friend a ride. The women who meet over for coffee to pray and talk. The new mother I visit to bless her newborn child. As I'm there, people from her community group drop off a meal, soups and casseroles. Her fellow church members who check in to see how she's doing. It is the small stories of love that make, that knit together a community. He's saying, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, And then he says, humility, meekness, patience. And I think about those qualities, humility, meekness, patience, and how Paul has chosen them to conclude this list. That this new way of life is an active life of love, but it's not an aggressive, domineering takeover campaign. It is not like the type A leader who takes the world by by storm. The scriptures regularly highlight Things like gentleness, compassion, humility. That our power comes not from how great we are, but by what we know, what has been done to us in Jesus. Paul wants the Christians at Colossae to be so humbled by grace and the unbelievability of what God has done for them when he shouldn't have done anything. To be so greatly Uh, deeply grateful for it that we have no use anymore for social barriers or status. We have become so equalized before God so that the rich become like the poor. Those of high status become like those of low status. All of them family across all kinds of ethnic and national barriers. They will come together and be compassionate, knit together by the humbling, equalizing love of God. Next, Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any has a grievance to one another, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Paul assumes the inevitability of this all getting messy fast. And he doesn't attempt to qualify this with any contingencies. He doesn't say if someone drops the ball, in in that event forgive them. He just assumes that the church is going to require lots and lots of forgiveness. And I love the realism here. Yes, the church is an alternate family, a new humanity. But one of its chief characteristics is the striking failure it is to be a fully realized moral alternative. 
and to admit that we don't always get it right. We will hurt people and be hurt by others. We will constantly be asking one another and the world for forgiveness. It's one of the reasons our corporate confession of faith week in and week out says we. We're not only confessing our private sins. The church is confessing its sin to one another and to the world. The church is an alternative family, in other words, precisely because it expresses and understands its need for forgiveness, but also because it's a place where forgiveness is freely offered. And that is also a radical idea in our broader culture where everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Our hurts can be mended. Reconciliation can be sought. Mercy can be extended. Our worst deeds need not define us. It's a great idea. Forgiveness, C.S. Lewis argues, is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. But without it, people leave churches, break relationships, communities fall apart, and Paul knows this. And he is saying, as difficult as it is, remember that God forgave you. If you are looking for inspiration for your own forgiveness, look no further. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive, he says. And he closes it out with that wonderful statement about love. And above all, these put on love which binds everything or everyone together in perfect harmony. And after going through the list, we know that when he's talking about love, he's not talking about fuzzy feelings. He's talking about something with grit, sharing life together in all of its ups and downs. This is a community that is anything but wimpish, People, people who have to forgive someone who has wronged them. Have you ever really tried to forgive someone? It's super hard. What about being compassionate or patient? Have you ever tried to let Christ's peace, Christ's word, Christ's name be the reality around which you organize your life? If you have, you know it's not easy. Gentleness. Patience, meekness requires the strength of self-control. It is costly to do these things. Scott McKnight finishes his commentary on this passage by saying this. However this text is explained, the focus is on an ecclesial or church-centered life up against an individualistic life, a life of love, a love that is rugged, a covenantal commitment to another person to be with that one and for that one as both journey into Christ-likeness. A rugged, covenantal commitment. And that just got me thinking about how much each of you is needed It's been a year since we've been down a pastor at the church. And that pastor 
is the pastor of community care and connection. All the while, we've been picking up the pieces from a global pandemic where a third of our people stopped going to church for any number of different reasons, a third of the faithful stick around, and a third of people as the great evangelical deck shuffle of churches. You're just new. So who are we? And we're supposed to be knit together in love. There are so many new faces around the church. Who's going to show up for them? We tend to think of churches being about us. Rather than a family. Where everyone contributes to the whole. How often do you think about what happens to our community when you're not here? When you slip out of a Sunday morning or skip your community group. And I know there's reasons for doing that. But when you withhold yourself, you withhold the glue which binds us together because the glue is love. And you may say, I don't have much to offer. I'm not charismatic. I'm not a leader. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a theologian. I'm not prophetic. And when I'm gone, there's nothing that will be missing. But honestly, you need to hear that I can't count how often I've seen radically impacting moments in the lives of disciples of Jesus initiated and carried out by the simple, unassuming, quiet men and women who are willing to just show up for another person, not be flaky, to go out on a shaky limb and pray for someone when it feels awkward. To bring the casserole and not just drop it off, but to step in and say, can I pray for you? People who don't know what they're, the heck they're doing, but they show up. Man, I just come here and sometimes I'm disheartened. I have the cloud of grumpiness over me. And then I see Ingrid crying, worshiping because she loves the Lord. And just her presence, her tears, her song and singing, it stirs my heart. And so my humble advice, my pastoral request is to show up, to try it. It's going to be costly. But this matters as much to your kids as their sports teams. I promise. Show up to your to your Sunday morning event or to your community group and just deliberately frame that moment as family and as you, as, as having something to contribute to it. It's going to be costly, but what's the cost of us not doing it? Consumeristic Christianity? The pace of life that most of us live, where we feel so disconnected, our, our relational muscles so atrophied, we don't even know what it means to be a friend anymore. The cost of trying to, to follow Christ alone in our secular wilderness? No. Paul offers us something different. Covenantal love. Ecclesial-shaped family, eternal bonds, a place where Christ is all and in all. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love, your graciousness, your word. 
which is trying to pull this church together. Um, and it seems like the things that divide them, it seems like they shouldn't be together. Um, but they have this bond in you. They have an ultimate treasure that they share. And they have an obligation because of what's been done to them in Christ to love one another. And as they do that, as we do that, we will find that our deepest wounds are met in familial care, in love, in mutuality, in commitment, in accountability, and connection. Our modern world doesn't make this easy. But I pray that we would find imaginative ways as a community to live this out together. The love, the patience, the kindness, the forgiveness, the clothing of Christ. Would you help us, Lord? We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen.